0: According to the National Crime Information Center's Missing and Unidentified Persons statistics for 2014, there are 84,924 active missing person cases in the U.S. today. If that number sounds small to you as it did to me, it turns out that being considered a true missing person is a somewhat tricky status to attain. These statistics, maintained and updated by the FBI, are limited to people that local police are actively looking for so the 85,000 number does not include many who would be considered missing by their families or community in addition the database uses its own somewhat strict criteria for putting someone into its system and then its own criteria for removing a case so it's hard to know if this number is close to being accurate or not even in the ballpark There's also a huge gap between this number and those who are reported missing. That number was over 600,000 in 2014. Of these cases, again, according to the FBI, 75% either return home, are found by police, or their records are deemed invalid, whatever that means. To further complicate matters, the true number of those who are missing does not, of course, include the unknown number of people who have gone missing but were never reported in the first place, which may include the most vulnerable members of our society, that is, people who have no one to report them missing, leaving them exposed to the worst kinds of human rights abuses. Considering all of these things, that leaves the 85,000 cases that are said to be true and official. But for our purposes, we can assume that the number is more rather than less. Some of these are documented on a different online database called NAMIS, the National Missing and Unidentified System. This database allows members of the public and law enforcement a shared place to research missing people. Where the National Crime Information Center is a place for statistics, NamUs is a website that tries to put a face and a story to each missing person. It's hard to describe the effect looking at these cases can have. They quickly feel personal and emotional, intimate even. You can, as some have, use the database to compare missing persons cases to unidentified bodies by looking at pictures of corpses they have on the site. Some brave web sleuths have even found matches solving missing persons cases. My name is Jordan. I guess you could say that I'm the type of person that would frequent NamUs, something one might call a little morbid. This fascination with true crime mysteries is one I have always shared with my closest friend, Daniel. When we met as college students in Los Angeles, we bonded by obsessively watching true crime, especially TV shows like Forensic Files and 48 Hours. These shows detailed infuriating mysteries. We would rehash the story again and again, coming up with clues, developing theories. We were popcorn-eating, armchair sleuths of the laziest order. Little has changed on that front. We're older, have college degrees, had various jobs, both as English teachers and writers. We're not official investigative journalists or detectives, but what we always come back to is the story. Mysteries of the missing are unique and that just telling the story, sharing the clues and circumstances, can completely change the case. There's the feeling to these stories that there is something else out there to know. If only someone was looking, talking, or even thinking about the story. That's where we hope this podcast comes in. Many missing persons cases are cold cases, meaning that all investigative leads are spent, time has passed, they are open cases, unsolved. Thin Air is a podcast devoted to warming these cold cases again. We hope to do this by reconstructing the missing person's narrative, telling the story of their lives and the day they went missing. We will break down the circumstances of their last known whereabouts, questioning the major pieces of evidence. Our narratives will explore theories for where the missing person could be now and what could have happened to them. Each episode will be dedicated to a different missing person's case and will be released every other week available on itunes and our soundcloud links are at our website thinairpodcast.com on our site you'll find much more information about us the cases we discuss and links to our patreon page on this our first episode of thin air daniel tells the story of charlie allen jr a college senior who was last seen running into the cold massachusetts woods early one october morning in 2007
1: 22-year-old Charlie Allen Jr. was last seen at 3 a.m. on October 12, 2007, crawling through the second-story window of Jean Boudreau's Massachusetts home. He was shirtless, shoeless, and wearing only running pants. Charlie was looking for his friend Mason, who lived some 30 minutes away in a different part of town. Boudreau told Charlie that Mason didn't live there, so he politely excused himself, backed out the window, and jumped down from the second-story overhang. Then... He ran off into the snowy woods bordering her house. That was the last confirmed sighting of Charlie Allen Jr. What's interesting about Charlie Allen Jr. is that on the surface, he looks like one of the typical good-looking, smooth-talking jock types. He's six feet tall, weighs somewhere between 175 and 190 pounds. On his missing flyer, His picture shows a man with buzzed brown hair, deep brown eyes, and an angular jaw that emphasizes his boyish good looks. On all accounts, Charlie seemed like a normal college senior, interested in the things college seniors are interested in. You know, girls, sports, video games. But beyond the superficial, you begin to uncover a person that is much more complex. And it seems like, if anyone was cunning enough to intentionally go missing, it just might be Charlie Allen Jr.,
2: Yeah, uh, well, I mean, first off, very intelligent, Uh, probably one of the smartest people I've ever known.
1: That's Anthony. Anthony is one of Charlie's best friends. In fact, Charlie had been living with Anthony during the summer of 2007, before he went missing.
2: Before he went missing in 2007, um, he lived with me for the summer. I think it was from, probably from like July till September.
1: I asked Anthony how he remembers Charlie.
2: He had a very good memory. Basically, a, a photographic memory. Uh, to give you an example, you could basically um, give him a credit card. You could show him the credit card. He would look at the credit card number, and maybe give him, I don't know, 15 or 20 seconds. He'd recite it in his head, and then he would just remember it. So it, it was. He was very good at just quick memory. Um, he was he was goofy, but at the same time, if you didn't know him very well. Um, you know, you might think that he's kind of serious, but when he kind of hung out with his friends and stuff, he had a really goofy side of him that not too many people got to see.
1: <laughs> There's something about the way Anthony laughs here that sticks out to me. When we talked to Anthony, it was just a few days after the eight-year anniversary of Charlie's disappearance. For me, his laugh sounds reminiscent, sounds hopeful, as though he'll see Charlie later that evening and they'll grab a beer and hang out.
2: If you knew him well, you know, he'd kind of... He was comfortable enough. You know, he was all around a great, a great kid, uh, really good in school. Um, you know, he liked to play sports. Uh, and as you can know, he's very good in the, the gaming world. So, I mean, he's very well known online just through, you know, Half-Life, Counter-Strike. Basically, he's one of those people where if he set his mind to do something, he would do it and he would excel at it pretty well. So um, definitely a one-of-a-kind. He's very unique. Um, But, I mean, I really have nothing but, you know, great things to say about him, so.
1: Charlie was a senior psychology major at Dartmouth when he went missing. But when he was younger, he spent his days playing the online video game Half-Life.
2: I guess you could really kind of say world-renowned. I mean, gaming, you know, branches out into, you know, internationally. So, I mean, he traveled down to Dallas, Texas uh, for the CPL. I mean, he was playing people from Sweden, uh, you know, from Japan, you know, just all over the world. So, online gaming his name was known everywhere and uh he was considered pretty much number one in the world uh, at half-life at a given time
1: in the online world charlie went by the handle neo a name he legally adopted in the months before he went missing anthony explains the reason behind his new name
2: he was heavily involved in tennis uh, and he kept saying you know he wanted to become a professional tennis player and, you know, he didn't really care for the name Charlie Allen. So, you know, he needed to have like a better name, you know. So when he's on TV and he was famous, he would just have like, you know, like kind of like a, I don't know, a unique name, I guess you could say. I kind of figured, you know, that was probably the name he would use. He didn't really say that. But just one day I was in my room because we were kind of living together and he stopped by and he's just like, yeah, I um, just want to let you know. Uh, I went to the um, I went down to the place and I, uh, I changed my name. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he's like, the girl actually laughed at me when I did it, <laughs> but uh, I changed my name and he just, he didn't say it. He just gave me his license and I, I looked at it and it read Neo Babson Maximus. So I kind of like did a double take and I looked at him I'm like, are you serious? And he's just like, yeah, he's like, you're the first person I told. He's like, I'm going to tell my sister later, but you know, don't say anything to anyone yet. And I'm like, all right, well, just to let you know, I'm not calling you Neo, like in the public, I'm still calling you Charlie. And he's like, no, no, you gotta dress me as Neo. And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. So we just kinda like, you know, joked around.
1: Charlie Allen Jr. had officially changed his name to Neo Babson Maximus, which is definitely a unique name. I asked Anthony if he knew the origins of Charlie's new name.
2: So, Neo, obviously the name from the video game. Babson, uh, I, I believe that's from his family name, uh, the heritage, and whatnot. If you go back in his family, I think Babson. Uh, is a name within his family. I don't know the the exact details. Uh, But Maximus, uh, his favorite character from any movie, uh, the movie Gladiator, uh, Maximus, he, uh, he liked that name. So he kind of, you know, tried to combine all three names together.
1: One of the patterns that I noticed while investigating this case is the consistency with which Charlie Allen Jr. invests himself into some facet of his life. Maybe it's because this is something I find myself doing. Maybe we all do it. We have an idea, we obsess over it, and we focus on it so much that we forget about everything else. We get tunnel vision. At a young age for Charlie, his obsession was video games, competing in professional tournaments and dedicating his every waking hour to mastering them. After high school, during college, he became obsessed with tennis. Tennis became his new half-life, his new obsession. We found a clip of Charlie on YouTube at the Cyber Athletes Professional League Tournament in Dallas, Texas. There's no date of when the video took place, but it was uploaded to YouTube on October 18th, 2007, just days after he went missing. In the video, he freestyle raps, but the part I was interested in was at the beginning.
0: When I get addicted to it, that's when I start to understand it. It's like my lesson
1: I've learned yeah, if you want to get good at something get addicted to it. yeah. It's kind of hard to hear in the clip, but Charlie says quote, "When I get addicted to it, that's when I start to understand it. That's like my lesson I've learned in gaming. If you want to get good at something, get addicted to it. Charlie entered into tennis with the same ferocity he had entered into competitive gaming with that same focus and dedication. however, Charlie had a secret that not too many people knew about. It was a secret he was able to hide from all but those who were closest to him.
2: You could tell, I mean, just even through high school, like, I mean, it was common. People knew about it. They knew that he had bipolar. They knew, like, you know, he was always taking his medication. But you could just, you know, you could tell when he had, like, his ups and downs but pretty much he was always normal. Like it wasn't like this person that was like Jekyll and Hyde and like, you know, one moment or this one moment or that he was like 95 or maybe even higher than that. Percent of the time he was just normal. I mean, and if, and if he had his downs, he hit it pretty well. But if you knew him, you could kind of tell. Um, but it wasn't like this person where like everybody knew like, Oh, you know, he's kind of weird. Like everybody knew him. I and mean, some people didn't even know that, that, that stuff was going on behind the scenes.
1: According to all accounts, Charlie had been taking medication to deal with his bipolar disorder, which is probably why he was able to hide it from so many people for so long. However, in the months leading up to his disappearance, Charlie stopped taking his medication and started exhibiting eccentric and rash behavior, as well as a new interest in Scientology, specifically their anti-psychological views. Anthony explains.
2: He really got involved with, I don't know if you know too much about like the Tom Cruise, the Scientology and whatnot. He was like... He was all about that. He would explain it to me and just, he would just say like, yeah, you know, the, the whole Scientology thing, he's like, you don't need medication. It's all a placebo effect. You know, it just, when people take medication, they think that it's helping them. But in reality, it's just, they're tricking themselves. It's a, you know, it's just a waste of money. You don't need it. It's not natural.
1: Then there was the fear. The fear that maybe Scientology had become his new obsession, or, at the very least, that it was the root cause behind his break in mental state. I didn't want to entertain the reality that Charlie could have intentionally left his friends and family to become part of a religious cult. I tried to get permission to speak with the lead investigator on this case to see if they ever considered this as a possible lead, but I could never reach anyone for comment. With that thought residing in the back of my mind, Anthony continues.
2: And he just kind of explained that to me. And his sleeping pattern, I forgot where he got this from, but it was really weird. And I, th- and I think this impacted his overall mind process because he was probably lacking sleep. He wouldn't sleep like normal people. He would, say during the day, because this was the summer, he would, you know, maybe take a nap from, I don't know, like just say 12 o'clock in the afternoon till 2. Then he would go play tennis Or he would do whatever he's going to do. And then maybe he'd come back around 5 o'clock. He'd take like a half an hour nap. Then maybe he'd be up for two hours. Then maybe he would take another hour or two hour nap. And basically every three or four hours he would take a nap anywhere from a half an hour to two hours. And that's what he would do. I honestly think that with the combination of him not taking the medication I guess he was supposed to be taking probably just made him overall act different.
1: Anthony elaborates on how Charlie was acting in the months leading up to his disappearance, including an impromptu trip to the 2007 Boston Open.
2: One thing that he did do that was absolutely, extremely weird. Um, He was very involved in tennis and at this time period the U.S. Open down in New York was going on. He actually um, just said, hey, you want to go to it? I'm like, dude, it already started. We don't have tickets. He's like, yeah, he's like, but, uh, you know, I really want to go. I'm like, well, I would go if we planned it out. And the next day, you know, because we, you know, he kind of was staying with me, we, you know, he might crash on the couch or whatnot. I got, I got up, he wasn't there. And I just figured, okay, maybe he went to see his sister at PC because it was down the road. He ended up texting me a picture, and it was kind of like a selfie shot of him and, like, one of the professional players. It was one of the, f- the female players. And he's like, yeah, he's just like, I drove down to New York, like, the very next day, he's like, I ended up um, just crashing on one of the benches, and then when they let people in, I kind of snuck in, and then he's like, when, when the match was over, because they would do day and night sessions, so when the day session was over, he went in the bathroom, and he's hidden there. So that way, when the night session started, he was already in there. He, he, I mean, I, I believed him, because he showed me pictures, and then, and then he ended up just kind of doing that, and then just crashing on a bench, and then he drove back up. So, very, very spontaneous, I guess you could say.
1: This wasn't the only time that Charlie showed strange behavior before he went missing.
2: There was an incident uh, when I was in Rhode Island where him, his sister, uh, and his mom, they went to Newport, Rhode Island. I think it was for for tenants. And uh, I guess he wanted to stay, and they wanted to leave. And I guess when they were leaving... He actually, you know, hopped out of the car as they were driving and then just ran into some bushes, they told me. So he called me after he did that and he's like, hey, (laughs) he's like, he's like, I'm down in Newport, I'm at a tennis thing. He's just like, I just hopped out of the car. I don't want to leave. He's just like, if my sister or mom calls you, don't tell them where I am.
1: This story that Anthony tells, that Charlie jumps out of a moving vehicle to stay behind, truly shows his mental state prior to his disappearance. It seems like if Charlie commits himself to something, nothing will get in his way.
2: I mean, obviously I knew the situation, like, you know, he's not in the right state of mind, but at the same time, you know, we obviously had a connection. So, you know, if he told me not to do something, I wanted to respect that in case he found out, maybe that would set him off. So I just kind of told the sister, you know, you know, look, you know, don't worry about it. I talked to him. He's going to be coming back here later. You know, I know that's kind of weird what happened, but just just let me handle it. And then, you know, his mother got on the phone and, you know, I talked to her and obviously, you know, I mean, that's, you know, it's his family and whatnot. So, I mean, I had to I had to I had to tell him, even though I didn't want to. And I just said, yeah, he's he's over in the bushes, I think, by the because uh, it's a baseball park uh, right down in Newport Center. So anyway, I, I remember him calling my phone. I didn't have it on me, but he left me a voicemail. And he just (laughs) these aren't the exact words, but basically he said something along the lines of, hey, I just want to let you know, um, I'm pretty mad that you told him where I was. And uh, when I become a tennis, when I become a professional tennis player, I was going to buy you a Viper, but now I'm not. Bye. And then he hung up on me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember him saying that and I just laughed. And then I saved the message and played it for him the next time I saw him. But then I don't I don't have it. I wish I still did.
1: This impulsive behavior continued until the day of his disappearance. October 11th, 2007. Charlie was supposed to have lunch with his father. Instead, the two spoke briefly on the phone, and Charlie played tennis with his friend Mason on the UMass Dartmouth campus where they both attended school. The two had dinner together at the cafeteria, and at one point during their meal, Charlie reached over the table, grabbed a slice of pizza off Mason's plate, and began eating it. When Charlie was confronted, he said that he thought it was his pizza. They laughed about it then, but now... Now it seems like foreshadowing. Mason and Charlie left each other with the agreement that they were going to meet up at 8 o'clock to go to a party. At some point, Charlie's sister Brittany calls him on his cell phone. She had recently discovered that his Facebook was deactivated and was calling to make sure everything was okay. We couldn't reach his sister for comment, but Anthony recalls hearing from her shortly after Charlie goes missing.
2: The way it came from when his sister called me one day, I was actually back home in Haverhill. I had left Providence. And she had told me, she was like, hey, you know, have you talked to Charlie lately? You know, I haven't, you know, I haven't talked to him. He kind of called me all panicking and just saying, you know, people are after me, people are after me and kind of really didn't make sense. And she, and she said that the last thing he said was, you know, look, look at the table of periodic elements to find the answer. And uh, then he hung up and I was like, no, I haven't talked to him. So I kept calling him um, because I had just seen him, I think, uh, the previous week.
1: We found footage of an interview Charlie's sister, Brittany, gave a local news station, In the interview, which also includes audio of her father, she describes the last time she talked to her brother. This is
2: 22-year-old Neo Babson Maximus, a UMass Dartmouth senior. On October 11th, Neo's family suspected things were getting worse. His sister, Brittany, called Neo because Neo's Facebook account was suddenly deleted.
0: He just seemed a little confused, you know, when I called him and asked him why he deleted it. um, He wasn't making that much sense. We just thought someone was after him. We actually abruptly ended the conversation. I think he hung up on me or, or something and his phone was turned off after that.
2: When did you realize Charlie was missing? You know basically when that occurred on October 11th um, you know we, we were concerned but we thought he'd turn up you know the next day. According
1: to accounts from Brittany Charlie's tone immediately shifted to panic after hearing about his Facebook. Charlie told her that he had sent some emails that some important people were after him. He also told her that all the answers could be found in or under, depending on the account, the periodic table of elements. And that was it. It wasn't long after his conversation with Brittany that he called both his mother and father on their respective cell phones and left them both conflicting goodbye messages. He told his father that he was going to Florida or Mexico, and he told his mom that he was going to Texas. This is the part of the story that really gives me pause. There's a piece of me that wants all of this to be a giant riddle. You know, Scientology, the emails, the important people, the name change, the periodic table of elements. But then there's the other part of me that feels like it's so extraordinary it couldn't possibly be true. I'll admit it. I spent hours trying to see if Neo Babson Maximus was an anagram for something, or if maybe you could spell his name with the periodic table of elements, as if that in itself would mean anything. Or maybe there was a clue hidden in the movies he named himself after. I'm not a professional journalist or detective, and I don't have a lot of resources available to me. I did what I felt was obvious. I went to Facebook. I searched his names. I found two exact matches for a Neo Babson Maximus. First, middle, and last. One is a profile from Mexico, and another appears to be a teenage boy, and they both look nothing like Charlie. The profiles seem to be real people too, so I messaged them. I wanted to know if that was their real name, or if they had ever heard of a Neo Babson Maximus. I'm still waiting for my reply. Next, I went to Spokio.com. It's like the white pages of the internet, except you have to pay for information. I signed up for it and I searched for Neo Babson Maximus, and there was one search result for a Neo Maximus in Norwalk, Connecticut. I called the number, it was disconnected. It seemed unlikely though, that Charlie would intentionally go missing yet still use a name that everybody knew about, especially if he's as genius as everyone says he is. Still, it nagged at me, It still nags at me today. I have no explanation for any of this. Charlie never met Mason that night. He stopped answering his phone. All of his calls went to voicemail. Then, around 2 a.m. that morning, Charlie climbed through the second story window of Jean Brudeau's home. She was sleeping in her bedroom when he opened the window and he told her that he was looking for his friend Mason. Startled, she told him that Mason didn't live there. So he politely excused himself, backed out the window, jumped down from the second-story overhang, and ran off into the woods by Jean Brudeau's home. This is the last confirmed sighting. If Charlie is as smart as everyone says he is, and he did that to his computer intentionally, then the web searches are clearly a red herring. Why wipe everything on your computer but that? However, If Charlie wasn't responsible for the wiping of his hard drive, then we can only assume there is something much more sinister going on. Could these so-called important people really be after him?
2: But I'm thinking maybe he just, you know, wasn't thinking in the correct way or in the right state of mind, and then just really believed someone was after him even though they weren't. Uh, And the whole computer thing, I mean, if this was planned and he wanted to do this, I mean, he he could easily, I mean, it's just, it's not hard to do. I mean, you just, you, you wipe your hard drive. I mean, you just reformat it or you just, you know, completely wipe it. So if it was planned, I mean, same thing with Facebook. People are like, oh, his Facebook was disabled. I mean, that's, that's not hard to do whatsoever. Um, so I I mean, he could have, if he did plan it, I mean, he could have done all that. Um, I mean, if he just disappeared randomly and it wasn't planned and then all that happened, then, you know, I'm not really sure because I mean, how can, if it's not planned, how can, his computer be wiped, his Facebook disabled.
1: It's tempting to be an armchair psychologist and hypothesize that Charlie Allen Jr. was in a manic state, which heightened his paranoia and caused him to run into the woods and never come out. But two major searches have been conducted in the four mile radius around his final confirmed sighting, and they both have turned up nothing. No body, no bones, nothing. In fact, Charlie's cell phone, charger and wallet have never been found. Neither the cell phone nor wallet have been used since October 11th, 2007, the day he went missing. The first media reports of Charlie's disappearance begin circulating around October 16th, 2007, and immediately tips started pouring in. However, the only credible tip, and I use the word credible loosely here, comes from a truck driver who reported seeing a barefoot and shirtless white male flagging down another truck driver. The truck driver's dates and facts are a little hazy. And like that, the case too goes hazy.
2: You hear a lot about it where he planned it and they think that he took off and, you know, he maybe hitchhiked and, you know, maybe went down somewhere. But I mean, this has gone around a lot more now publicly. So, I mean, I would think, you know, People have to, like, in other areas, like, be aware of this story. And I've heard that there's been some sightings of him.
1: That's right. After two years, a sighting. It was December of 2009. Stephen Kelly and his family were living in New Bedford, Massachusetts, some seven miles from the UMass Dartmouth campus, when they get a knock on their door around four in the morning. Stephen answers the door and sees an unidentified white male standing in front of him, who he describes as being underdressed for the cold December weather. The man asks him if he knows how to get to the SMU campus. SMU is what UMass Dartmouth used to be called prior to 1991. Confused, Stephen closes the door and calls the police. By the time the police arrive, the man was gone. It wasn't until a few days later when Stephen stumbles upon the missing persons report for Charlie Allen Jr. that he makes the connection. Stephen Kelly insists that Charlie Allen Jr. was the man standing on his porch that morning in December of 2009.
2: I didn't anticipate that, you know, at first when this all happened, I figured, you know, just being an idiot, you know, he'll come back, he's gonna have a good story to tell, you know, whatever. I didn't think, you know, that it was gonna evolve into all this, where it's you know, eight years down the road, it's still the same situation. I mean, I, I, knowing him, like, I, I'm, I'm, I feel confident that you know, he's, you know, he's still out there. I mean, like I said, he was very smart, even if he's not in the right state of mind, he's still very, very intelligent. So, I mean, I honestly, I mean, I have no idea what's going on, but I mean, I just feel. Like, if he wanted to be found, he would. If he doesn't want to be found, then he won't. But, I mean, i just obviously be nice. I mean, this is getting out, obviously, more publicly. I mean, it already is. So I just hope that, obviously, if someone has seen him, whether they know where he is at that any given time, at least if someone can, you know, call authorities or post something online or say something to someone so it gets out that they did see him, obviously, you know, would that would <laughs> that'd be nice to know.
1: I really want to share Anthony's optimism about this case. But what makes this case so challenging and yet so fascinating is the sheer number of possibilities that could account for what happened to Charlie. Yet, it seems that every one of these possibilities leads to so many more possibilities. There's the possibility that he entered a manic state and found himself stranded in the middle of the dense forest that surrounded the location of where he went missing, dying a lonely death in the cold, dark woods. And the search teams have just overlooked his body then there's the possibility that he left intentionally that he deactivated his facebook although he acted surprised and panicked wiped his hard drive planted the red herring and took off in the opposite direction where publicity regarding his case was minimal after all he tried to do this in the past so why not now there's the possibility that in a manic state He hitched a ride to Clearwater, Florida and dedicated his life to the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. There's the possibility that he was telling the truth, that important people were after him, that he'd used his knowledge of computers to hack into confidential documents. Maybe the planting of evidence and ambiguity regarding the disappearance was intentional, so to protect the people he cared about, like his mom, dad, sister, and friends. Whatever happened, there's a real possibility that we'll never know, and that will never have the answers. But like in so many of these cases, no answers are essentially good answers because no answers leave us open to the possibility of that wonder and that hope that one day someone will know something. To this day, Charlie Allen Jr. remains missing.
0: That was Daniel reporting on the disappearance of Charlie Allen Jr. For more information on the case, along with pictures and other information related to this story, please visit our website at thinairpodcast.com. And of course, if you have any information about this case, please contact Detective George Perry of Dartmouth Police. His contact information is on our website.
1: On the next episode of Thin Air
0: and there, and there were, and there were more. I mean, there's more. When you start opening up their lives in Oregon, there's there's kids that went missing in Oregon, and then when they went to Arkansas, there's kids that went missing in Arkansas. You know, they're serial killers, and I I don't have any doubt in my mind about
2: that.
1: A two-part special as Jordan investigates a cold case from 1977, the disappearance of a young woman in Idaho in the midst of a custody battle turns into a story about family betrayal, satanic panic, kidnapping, and a convicted serial killer who calls our investigation a, quote, mission impossible. Join us in two weeks.
0: Today's episode was produced by myself, Jordan Sims.
1: And myself, Daniel Calderon.
0: Thank you to Anthony Costanzo for talking with us about the disappearance of his friend Charlie. Music today was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can check out their website at blue.sessions.bandcamp.com. For any questions or feedback, you can contact us at thinairpodcast at gmail.com. Thin Air Podcast is independently produced and financed. If you like what you hear and want to support this podcast so we can keep producing episodes, please visit our website at thinairpodcast.com for links to our Patreon page. Patreon is a website dedicated to supporting artists and their endeavors. It allows you to pledge a monthly amount towards supporting this podcast. With enough support, we could improve our overall quality, produce more episodes, hire staff, and eventually become a professionally produced podcast. That would be huge. Please visit our website. That address again is thinairpodcast.com. Click the donate button in the upper right hand for a link to our Patreon page. One more time, that's thinairpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.